And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation despite the fact that there is a great threat from domestic terrorism. That's the subject of a new piece. It's an alarming new piece in Atlantic magazine. And the writer says the dangers of domestic terror come from the left and, yes, from the right. So what do we do about it? We'll be speaking to Adrienne LaFrance. There's also a danger in this country, obviously, of the fentanyl and the overdose epidemic and more than 100,000 Americans who are killed every year. Somebody made the uh, comment, and it it's actually has the great virtue of being true, is more Americans die every year now of overdoses than died during any one year of World War II. More people died during a year of the Civil War because the Civil War was the bloodiest war in our history and people on both sides were Americans. But the, uh, the idea that we are losing more people to fentanyl than we, we lost to the Nazis and the Japanese combined, it's, and it's extraordinary. Uh, and yet, uh, uh, we, do we have any new plans from the Biden administration or, frankly, from the Republicans about what to actually do about this. We'll talk to General Barry McCaffrey, who is one of the most decorated Army officers ever. And he was also uh, a head and a very successful head, actually, of our uh, anti-drug efforts in this country. We'll also talk to him about the fight in Ukraine and why all of these issues are related. Uh, but uh, first off on the Michael Medved show, there's this incredible story, and and it's it's foolish to ignore it because it's everywhere and it's dramatic and it's shocking. Is that even while people are talking about uh, the the actual meaning of the forty four thousand hours, or some people say it's forty one thousand hours. It's a lot of videotape and a lot of videotape of the Capitol building and a lot of it that shows some really disgusting violence and harm to people and the parading of gallows and all kinds of nasty and evil and vicious behavior. And then some of it that shows people just kind of walking around and uh, looking at the Capitol building and going in through Doors that weren't open for them for the most part because they were smashed. You can see the videos of people smashing them and crashing glass and going inside. And yes, and now they have actually recounted and Wall Street Journal uh, recounted there were 150 police officers who were hospitalized. And no, it's not because they slipped on the slippery, well-waxed marble floors of the Capitol building. It's because there were a lot of creeps. Uh, and a lot of creeps, and yes, some perfectly well-meaning Americans who were just trying to express themselves and had no violent tendencies, but there are enough creeps there at the Capitol building to actually wound police officers and to damage some of them for life. And uh, the, 
the idea that this was actually all innocent, that this is somehow a false charge against President Trump, uh, what's fascinating about all of this is um, most of this, all of this is coming from a Fox News host who actually right before January 6th was saying how much he hated Donald Trump. How do we know? Because of messages that have been recovered in this Dominion lawsuit uh, that that clearly indicate that there was a tremendous gap, a tremendous gap between the parts that some uh, personalities on cable news, the parts they were playing on air, and who they really are. And I was thinking about this, and it, it kind of broke my heart because uh, I, I remember, and uh, believe it or not, I was working with Jeremy even then. It's a very long time ago. Is uh, 26 years ago when I started off on talk radio. I, uh, as people know who know about me or know about the show, I really got my start doing talk radio as after having done. Uh, books and articles and a TV show for a long time. I uh, did a TV show in Britain and did a TV show here on PBS, uh, Sneak Previews. But as I was starting off with my first ever talk radio show, and the date was actually July 31st, 1996, right before I went on the air, I got a call from uh, Rush Limbaugh. And it meant a great deal to me because I had really gotten my start as a uh, guest host, as a replacement host uh, during Christmas season and other times when Rush took time off. And um, and I was very touched, and, I, and, and Rush just told me, you know, I know you're going to do great. I know it's exciting to you, and you're, you're starting your own show. I said, what's your number one piece of advice? And his number one piece of advice for being a success at doing talk radio, uh, and for that matter, this applies to TV as well, is always be yourself. Don't try to fake people out. Don't try to pretend to be somebody that you're not. Be who you are. And, <laughs> and then you see that... Uh, some of these personalities, one personality in particular on Fox, who said right before January 6th, and this is before the riots and Trump's handling of the riots, which whatever you want to say, it was not handled well, right? If you're president of the United States and there are thousands of people who break into the Capitol building and interrupt the legal proceeding that is supposed to be going on to certify the election. The, um, they report on CNN, and this is not information revealed by CNN. It's information revealed in court because it's part of the Dominion lawsuit uh, against uh, uh, Fox Network. Months after the 2020 presidential election and two days before the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, uh, the leading host right now saying that there was nothing wrong with the attack on the Capitol wrote in a text message that he hated then-President Donald Trump passionately. Uh, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. Uh, it was written on January 4, 2021. 
I truly can't wait. I hate him passionately, meaning Trump. I blew up at Peter Navarro today in frustration. I actually like Peter, but I can't handle much more of this. That's the last four years. We're all pretending we've got a lot to show for it because admitting what a disaster it's been is too tough to digest. But come on, there isn't really an upside to Trump. Wait a minute. This is Fox News. This is uh, people who obviously disregarded the Rush Limbaugh advice, which I've always tried to take very seriously, to be yourself, to be authentic. Could there be any more glaring example of inauthenticity? How, how does one make sense of this, really, other than saying that people are playing a part on the air? And uh, in any event, this goes on. We're going to be talking coming up to General Barry McCaffrey, who is an American patriot, an amazing warrior and public servant. We will be right back on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. I really enjoy your program. I listen to talk radio all day. You're definitely right up there, the cream of the crop. This is The Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. That's Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, this uh, came in. We have a um, an email that came in on the subject that we are talking about right now, which is the the ongoing contradictions between what people in uh, uh, in cable news were saying very privately to each other, and it's not one person it's it's a whole squadron of people who who admitted that the entire stolen election mantra that was a very very big theme uh among too many conservatives that that stolen election mantra was a joke and was a fraud and was an embarrassment and you have uh, examples of messages that were sent. No one's denying them. No one's claiming they were faked. They were actual messages. And then there's actual testimony by Rupert Murdoch, who, of course, is the big cheese behind uh, Fox News and uh, behind the Wall Street Journal, for that matter, and a great deal of conservative media. But uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch admitting that uh, his Fox News hosts went too far. But he, what he didn't admit is they went too far saying stuff they didn't believe. I mean, this is amazing stuff that is going on. The, um, uh, some of the, the uh, statements in some of these messages by Tucker Carlson 
the question that I think he is going to have to ask is, does he still believe the way he believed before January 6th? Or was there something about that riot and its impact on the country that actually changed uh, the way that he viewed Donald Trump? From uh, when he wrote, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights, he wrote on January 4th, 2021. I truly can't wait. I hate him passionately. I blew up at Peter Navarro today in frustration. I actually like Peter, but I can't handle much more of this. That's the last four years. We're all pretending we've got a lot to show for it because admitting what a disaster it's been is too tough to digest. But come on, there isn't really an upside to Trump. So after January 6th, there was an upside, a positive upside. And the um, text messages also say uh, he was pushing voting fraud stuff. I have no doubt there was fraud. But at this point, Trump and Lynn and Powell and by uh, Lynn, Lynn uh, I'm not sure which Lynn he means, but... Uh, at this point, Trump and Lynn and Powell have so discredited their own case and the rest of us to some extent that it's infuriating. Absolutely enrages me. On January 6th itself, Carlson wrote in a text message to his producer, Alex Pfeiffer, that Trump is a demonic force. He is a destroyer, but he's not going to destroy us. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, the demonic force, at least according to Tucker Carlson, is making uh, another race for the presidency. The, the, the difference here, and it's very dramatic, is there's a piece by Gerard Butler, which is, I think, a very important piece, which asks about what shape this campaign is going to take. And the campaign is uh, increasingly looking like it's going to be a campaign between uh, Donald J. Trump and uh, Ron DeSantis. Those at least are certainly the two front runners right now. Is it possible that Nikki Haley, who has an effective new ad that she has put out uh, about spending and government spending? Yeah, Nikki Haley could make a difference here. But uh, Gerard Butler's piece says DeSantis versus Trump pits accomplishments against narrative. The ex-president portrays himself as the people's hero, but the governor has a stronger record. And what he writes about is uh, the, the fact that um, when you talk about DeSantis, you're talking about issues. And there are no real issues on which Trump disagrees with or criticized DeSantis. I mean, what he calls, calls on is what he focused on and he spoke about in his speech at CPAC was the fact that uh, DeSantis, when he was in the House of Representatives, supported the idea of doing some restructuring of Social Security and Medicare in order to keep them solvent to stop them from going bankrupt and going bust, which was a very real possibility. And uh, the, the other issues, uh, the only ones that it seems to me could end up being real issues between Trump and DeSantis, one has to do with uh, 
whether it's useful to have all this conversation about January 6th and about the stolen election and uh, or whether it is more beneficial to just go forward and focus on other things, what you can do with the power the people voted for you to have. And it, it seems to me there's no real argument there, is there? Because in other words, if if you believe that we should be focusing all on alleged democratic fraud in the election of uh, 2020 or in Carrie Lake's case, the election of 2022, question is, what do you think is going to happen? No, really, what do you think is likely to happen in, in that regard? Where is it going to go? Uh, I mean, is the uh, election going to be rerun now? Is Trump going to be reinstalled? I mean, this seems to me to be deeply, deeply unlikely. And uh, the other issue is uh, an issue of uh, Ukraine. Now, on both of those issues, I think that uh, Ron DeSantis is going to have to be a little bit more clear. Uh, which side is he on? Um, Trump has been increasingly clear, and he's on sides that I don't think represent the majority of the Republican Party. Uh, they may reject, represent the majority of people who are at CPAC, but I don't think the majority of the uh, Republican Party wants to see Ukraine go down or doesn't care about defending Zelensky and the freedom fighters in Ukraine from Vladimir Putin and one of the most monstrous regimes that wants to return to the bad old days of the evil empire. So what do we do about that? And uh, what do we do about, oh, some of the issues involving Mexico and national security on the southern border? And uh, what is another example of uh, an activist governor in Florida? Yeah, that would be Ron DeSantis, who is taking on a conservative cause that deserves more attention than it's received. It has to do with phony lawsuits and the depredations of the legal profession. We will get to that, but first up, we speak to Barry McCaffrey, uh, general, war hero, and uh, anti-drug fighter. We'll be right back with General McCaffrey. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, one of my favorite guests for this show, period, is General Barry McCaffrey, who is an American hero. I mean, you look at his record. He served in the U.S. Army for 32 years. He was the most decorated general serving in the United States Army when he retired in 1996, having been awarded three Purple Heart Medals for wounds received in combat, two Distinguished Service Crosses, the nation's second highest award for valor, and two silver stars for valor. He served overseas for more than 12 years and four combat tours with the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, he also happened to serve in Bill Clinton's cabinet as director of the Office of National Drug Policy Control. And um, he, uh, in that capacity, uh, went down in history as one of our most effective drug fighters ever, uh, and right now, you don't question the idea that we have a profound crisis with fentanyl and fentanyl overdoses. I mean, it's something you're concerned about, right, General McCaffrey? 
Yeah, no question. Look, the, the numbers uh, speak for themselves, and they're just shocking. Uh, last year, we had essentially 107,000 people die of drug overdoses. Substantially, much of them were uh, killed by fentanyl, and a lot of it, not uh, somebody seeking out fentanyl, but getting it accidentally in, in pill form, uh, purporting to be some other drug. We also, I might add, though, to underscore this, had 101,000 died from alcohol abuse. Uh, so it, it, we just got to underscore that this is a massive loss of life. Just the drug overdoses alone are higher than any year casualty rate in World War II. So we're inadequately organized. The problem is spinning out of control. It's lethal beyond belief, and it's destructive to families and the workplace and the social setting. And we got to do something better. Okay, uh, there are members of the U.S. Senate, uh, most of them Republicans, but not all Republicans, who are calling for basically classifying the drug cartels as terrorists, and uh, if necessary, sending military force south of the border into Mexico to um, basically confront the cartels. Uh, you're. Uh, opinion on that as both a drug warrior and uh, an American highly distinguished army warrior? Well, it's nonsense, uh, to be blunt. I mean, the Mexicans understandably have heightened sensitivity to any infringement on their sovereignty. Uh, my experience has been that low-level law enforcement and prosecution contact between Mexican authorities and and the U.S. are possible, particularly if you don't put it in the public media. Uh, but And so we've actually got military-to-military -military contact also. It took us decades to get them to acknowledge that. Uh, Secretary of Defense Bill Perry and I were the first. Um, I was a SOSCOM commander to people to set foot in Mexico, just to show you the sensitivity. They wouldn't even receive visitors of our uh, rank. Uh, so, you know, the, the notion that we'd be, what, firing cruise missiles off a Navy destroyer at uh, drug labs in Mexico or conducting commando raids without the permission of Mexico just sounds preposterous to me. What we can do, however, though, is do better at the border, and this tends to be a communications and signaling and strategy challenge to the Biden administration in particular, um, most of the people flooding across that border are not involved in crime. Uh, the coyotes bringing them across are, are criminals. But enmeshed in that traffic, much of the illegal drug traffic into the United States comes out of Mexico. Methamphetamines, fentanyl, uh, you name it, cocaine coming out of Colombia. Uh, that's where it is. So we've got to do better at border control and that includes, you know, allowing legal migration uh, where warranted. We desperately need workers from Central America uh, and Mexico, but they, but they need to come in legally, not uh, in the dead of night across the frontier, dying in the desert by hundreds. We got a, we got a challenge. Okay, one of the things that came up at the CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, which was really a festival of. Uh, celebration of uh, Donald J. Trump and support for his new campaign 
was the argument that we make the mistake of spending more money defending the border of Ukraine than we spend defending our own borders here in the uh, southern part of the United States, uh, to which you say, General McCaffrey? <laughs> you know, you hear this kind of fallacy and argument. Um, I used to hear it the, the other way around, where it's somebody would tell me, look, we're not spending as much money on uh, drug prevention programs as we are on the flying hour program for the U.S. Air Force. You, you simply can't compare these these numbers. Ukraine is vitally important to U.S. national security interests and that of Europe, our major trading partner. Uh, we should stand behind uh, Ukraine, a struggling democracy against uh, Putin's criminal invasion of a sovereign state. So setting that one aside, uh, our problems on the border uh, may include – not enough resources. Um, but, I, but I think the principal challenge on the border is how do you rationalize uh, welcoming um, workers in the United States legally from uh, Mexico and Central America in particular while screening out uh, economic refugees? You know, I spent a lot of time in Central America, Mexico, throughout Latin America, and indeed Cuba. And if you were a young man or a mother in Central America, you're nuts to not try and get in the United States. I mean, the lack of justice and poverty and cruelty in Central America is beyond belief. But on the other hand, I, it doesn't, it's not clear to me that any sovereign state uh, should give up the right to choose how and when people come into the country. And right now, it's out of control. So we need better border control, no question, of which a subcomponent is uh, drug control. But I think we also just need to say, look, we're a law-based nation. If you want to come to the United States, go to a consulate or a U.S. embassy or do it online and submit a request and come across the border legally, work here, send your money home to your mother. Uh, you know, why can't we come up with a sensible solution like that? The, the answer is it's a politically divisive issue. Yeah, and, and speaking of politically divisive issues, you've taken the position that if uh, we could get NATO advanced technology uh, to Ukrainian hands before summer, uh, they could actually win this war. You still hold to that? Yeah, I do. And, you know, look, I'm sympathetic. I've worked in two administrations in the White House, National Security Council meetings. So the Biden administration, they get first-rate people in Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and uh, CIA Director Burns. These are smart, experienced people. And they have rightfully been concerned about escalating the conflict or having it turn nuclear, for God's sakes. Uh, so Putin has... Um, has upped his threat level, as well as members of the you know Russian Duma. It, the things they say is just uh, simply beyond belief. Uh, so we we got to do better. And, and I know you have another another commitment, uh, General McCaffrey, which I appreciate. And I appreciate your time. It's. So many issues to cover, including uh, the seizure of 232 pounds of fentanyl worth more than $3 million. Where? What part of Mexico? 
will no part of Mexico. It's here in our country. Where we'll tell you coming up. Entertain your brain. It's awesome. Every day on the Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. You have the greatest show on the planet. The Michael Medved Show. And the Michael Medved Show uh, talking about San Diego cops. And uh, whenever I hear about San Diego cops, I uh, think about our friend Ruben Navarrete, a very frequent guest on the show, whose dad gave 30 years of his life to the San Diego police force. Well, they just seized 232 pounds of fentanyl which is uh, enough to kill 50 million Americans? Well, it really is. It's worth more than $3 million. By the way, you talk about life being cheap. I mean, when you talk about something that costs $3 million or is worth $3 million, but it's worth potentially 50 million American lives, on uh, February 27th, San Diego Border Patrol seized 232 pounds of fentanyl during a traffic stop in San Clemente, California. By the way, I, I know that whenever there's an incident like the terrible, terrible Tyree Nichols incident that uh, we, we just had in Tennessee, but uh, people say, well, why do they have to do traffic stops? Why should they do traffic stops? This is why. Because every once in a while, not often, you'll stop a car that has 232 pounds of fentanyl in it. Now, the load was worth $3 million on the street. It could have killed up to 50 million Americans if distributed. So far, 12,500 pounds of fentanyl have been seized since last October. And the Border Patrol has seen a 300% increase in fentanyl seizures in a year. Now... That's a good thing. And that means that people are actually trying to take care of business and doing so. But uh, it, it does get attention, especially when you, we talk about it being in San Diego, which among the biggest cities in America, San Diego has one of the lowest murder rates, one of the lowest violence rates, one of the least levels of crime. And for some reason, San Diego does not have quite the levels of homelessness of San Francisco or L.A. Um, part of the reason for that is San Diego has had over the years a uh, selection of pretty good Republican mayors. Yeah, it's one of those rare big cities with Republican mayors. Uh, Kevin Faulkner, who uh, ran for governor later of California, as a Republican, uh, was mayor of San Diego. Pete Wilson was a terrific mayor of San Diego, later the governor of California and uh, senator from California, and again, a Republican. Uh, speaking of Republicans and the future, and I mentioned this terrific Gerard Baker piece. Uh, let me just share the heart of it with you, because I think it's, it's tremendously important for understanding 
the way that the the contrast between Trump and DeSantis is going to work its way out. Um, he 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 writes for a while about the ambitious DeSantis agenda and how much she has gotten done and that he's still planning to get done in his second term as governor of Florida. And he says, but there's almost nothing in the DeSantis record that Mr. Trump would oppose. The question Mr. DeSantis poses to Republican voters is this. Do you want a populist conservatism based on a record of achievement? Or do you want a leader who articulates your grievances better than anyone but doesn't seem to care much about actually addressing them? That isn't a rhetorical question. While Mr. DeSantis offers an agenda, Mr. Trump offers a story. Mr. DeSantis can cite a stronger record of accomplishment in policy and electoral politics, while the former president claims a compelling narrative in which he plays the starring role, a melodrama that pits dark, powerful forces against the people's peerless hero. Mr. Trump's many travails, the threat of criminal indictment, his own wild claims of stolen elections, hostile media on all sides, give his story meaning to voters who have lost faith in traditional approaches to governing. There may be one or two substantive differences. Mr. Trump has figured that protecting Social Security and Medicare is a winning message given his likely opponents past support for fiscal reform. But the contest is above all one between a plan rooted in real-world execution and a tale floating on a cloud of fiction. The contrast was on sharp display over the weekend. While Mr. DeSantis was talking up his plans to the Club for Growth a few miles from Mar-a-Lago, Palm Beach's most famous resident told his story at the annual conservative political action conference near Washington. They're not coming after me. Mr. Trump said of his many enemies, they're coming after you, and I'm just standing in their way. Will those 16 words of storytelling resonate more strongly than 60 days of legislation? We're about to find out. And then there's this, which should excite every thinking conservative, it seems to me. A Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, and other Republican leaders in Florida are pushing legislation to reduce litigation that they say is hurting the state's economy and imperiling its uh, allure to businesses considering relocating here. At a time when similar efforts around the U.S. have generally slowed from past decades, Florida GOP lawmakers are considering a bill in the legislative session starting this week aimed at uh, reducing what proponents consider frivolous lawsuits, excessive damage awards, and high attorney fees. Quote, said Mr. DeSantis, this will be generally the most significant legal reform that's ever been done in the modern history of the state of Florida. It's going to make Florida a more attractive place to do business. Plaintiffs' lawyers, of course, and Democrats opposed to the measure criticize it as an effort to protect business What's wrong with that? And insurance profit by crimping people's ability to hold wrongdoers responsible for harms they commit. Business groups and Republicans who back it argue that Florida's litigious environment generates significant added costs for customers by driving up insurance premiums and other prices. 
Uh, studies in recent years by the American Tort Reform Foundation ranked Florida as one of the worst judicial hellholes in the U.S. for allegedly abusive litigation. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform has rated Florida's liability system one of the least fair in the country and found that the state is a leader in nuclear verdicts of over $10 million. Well, if that changes, isn't that a good thing? And uh, then we had an email that came in concerning the ongoing discussion of what really happened on January 6th and what it really was. Was it just a sightseeing expedition that some people got out of hand? Uh, This came from Nancy in Moses Lake, Washington. She says January 6th uh, uh, only showed selective um, uh, footage, uh, edited footage. Tucker has shown both. No one from Antifa or BLM has been held accountable uh, for anything. People arrested for January 6th and were held without bail, representation, seeing family, and often in solitary confinement. It's not so often. And it's not true. And they had representation. I mean, some of them, yes, were public defenders. And in terms of Antifa and BLM, Black Lives Matter wasn't part of that demonstration. If they were part of that demonstration, wouldn't they have had some signs, some indications, something? And uh, again, given the number of uh, prosecutions and investigations and looking at the video of people, uh, they can identify people who are actually there. And so far, you're right. Nobody who is part of that particular riot, they're parts of all kinds of other riots and deserve to be tried for that. But not that one. They say Garland can't find and arrest people because their actions took place at night in the dark. What a worthless AG he is. January 6th videos show everyone. And do they get arrested? The officer did not die during this protest. Only a defenseless Trump-supporting woman. She's talking about Ashley Bobbitt. Uh, Yes, unfortunately, 100-plus officers were hurt. But that hardly justifies what the corrupt commission did nor your one-sided story. Uh, How was the January 6th commission corrupt? What is corrupt about it? It should have been, as I've said many times, it would have been better if there had been more Republicans uh, on uh, the commission to give another side and to argue. But, But really... Is there any real doubt that what happened on January 6th was a disgrace for this great...